Good morning. Welcome to the show. I hope everybody had a great, great week and uh, happy Sunday morning. Hope uh, you guys got your got your prayer on this morning or on the way. Uh, a lot of y'all always reach me and text me and say you're on the way to church and you watch the show and you're like, well, why you got that song on during Sunday? Uh, it's not a gospel show. That's why. That's the only reason. But we do like to talk about politics and we like to talk about business and all that good stuff. But today we're going to focus on public service and politics. And a few of y'all asked me uh, if I knew this amazing young woman down in South Florida that just became a, became a congresswoman. And is a lot of you said it this way, the, good, the one who took uh, Al C. Hastings' seat. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, you know, I do know her. And a lot of you ask me, well, when are you going to have on the show? And, you know, that was never up to me. It was always up to her. And you know what? I asked her and she said yes. And she's here with us today. Congresswoman <laughs> Sheila Sherfalis McCormick. And that's a lot of name for a very, very somebody who brings a lot to the table. Congresswoman, how you doing? I'm good. Good morning. And thank you so much for having me today. Man, thank you for coming on. And congratulations to you. You're recently sworn in. And, uh, you know, what a race. <laughs> what a mm -hmm. race. I mean, it was pretty close, right? I mean, we're in North Florida and South Georgia, but but we were all paying attention to it. How does it, I mean, listen, you, you it was close, but when you look at where you won, you really, it was not close in the places that you won, right? Yeah, yes, yes. What, you know, what does that say to you uh, when you think about this achievement? Because what an achievement. Yes. I mean, the first thing that always comes to my mind is God be the glory. <laughs> because <laughs> it was a hard fight all the way down to the end. And we really put in a lot of effort um, in both counties, in Broward and in Palm Beach County. It's just that we had a lot more competition in Broward. And we had a lot um, of elected officials who were in Broward. So it was really hard for people to kind of, you know, take that risk when they knew some people who were there longer. But in Palm Beach County, um, a lot of people knew us from the last elections and we had more relationships and we had a lot more elected officials who were coalescing around us. So we were really able to kind of like blow people out the water in Palm Beach County. Um, it, it was a fight, though. It was a fight in Palm Beach County, but... Ground Zero yeah. was really Broward County. Like, that's where the fight and the numbers, it was on in Broward <laughs> County. Yeah, it was on. But you know what? I'm from Palm Beach County, though, so shouts out to Palm Beach. You, you got it right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but, but listen, it was a, a, an amazing race to watch and to watch what you did. And, and, you know, you sort of seemed like you knew how to get this done. And, and Palm Beach leaned in. They leaned in, and they leaned in for you. And you now have, you know, replaced a legend. I mean, you replace a guy who, you know, name recognition was out the yin-yang and God bless him because he's, he's, he's passed on now. But what does it feel like to, you know, follow in the footsteps of somebody who, you know, just sort of uh, was an icon? Yeah, 
Well, I, you know, it's a big burden and you feel the, the pressure to live up to it every day. But, you know, there's only going to be one Alfie Hastings ever, right? That's just the uniqueness that how God creates us. Um, and I sincerely believe that I can never fill his entirety of his shoes, but I can walk my own path and wear my own pumps and my heels <laughs> and get the job done. And so um, a lot of the work is really being an individual in the sense of not allowing myself to be, or people to try and pigeonhole you, because Alcee did that very well. No one was going to pin him down to this side or that side. Everybody knew Alcee to be himself. That's and right. that's really the legacy of the sea is being yourself and fighting for the people. So a lot of times when I get interviews and they're trying to put a label, I'm like, uh-uh, we're here for the people. What the people need is what we're going to do and what we're going to fight for. Right. But now the seat is 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 yours. It's it's Congresswoman Sheila Sharifalis McCormick. And you're writing your own pace now, your own level, your own issues. And you were fighting for issues before you were a congresswoman. You spent the last decade advocating in Congress uh, to drive positive change in health care reform and job creation. How does how does that change into into the politics of it all and you now being in a place where you well, you got to vote? Well, it's a huge change because usually, you know, I'm on the begging side. I say when we go up there and we're talking to members of Congress and we're like leading um, activism, you're really begging and hoping that someone will empathize with the struggle of people, especially the empathize that minorities face being deprived from health care really because of um, social economic barriers that we were kind of born into being black in America. Um, but now I actually have a chance to carve it out, right? Um, my heart already has empathized, so now I can write policies. I can, coming into a special election, and in the middle, um, now I can actually start putting amendments in that talk about our needs and give us a chance. And I always say that the black community has been systematically um, excluded. And now this is our opportunity to systematically write us in to every process, every procedure, every health care, every initiative, the infrastructure bill, just to make sure that we are actually capturing what's ours. And that is an opportunity for health. That is an opportunity for wealth. And that's just an opportunity to live in the United States with dignity, with social justice reform. Well, you are also, you know, the first in so many ways in your family, in, in, in your ethnicity, um, uh, t- tell us about what about that sort of led you to the fact that you were like, this is where I ought to go. This is where I ought to be. Well, growing up as a first generation American and with parents who come from um, Haiti, you, it's kind of like I understand what it is to have to read to your parents and explain to them the system and what they have to do. Just they lean on us so much and other members of the community lean on us for understanding of how to navigate the not just even the political system but the administrative system when it comes to getting um, insurance or social security your license it's a lot of that and you see the struggle and when you're a child of immigrants you know that you come your parents come here with nothing so you really are starting off from ground zero not understanding the language not understanding anything so we had to work extremely hard and fight extremely hard and even though we've come to a place of success I would tell people that I've known struggle more than I've known wealth Mm. because that's where we come from. And when that has been your norm for 30, 40 years, 
you're always going back to that place of I have to succeed because I can't starve. I have to succeed because my kids uh, might need health care. And that's what keeps me fighting because I know that any day my trajectory can change. That's right. And I know that even me being successful, that could be me. So I don't want anyone to have to live how my mindset is. Um, and that's why I fight so hard. Well, and I love hearing that. And and so, Liz, let's talk about your district a little bit. I mean, you, you serve District 20, which is 60% black, 40% non-black, a solid amount of Hispanic and additional populations from Pacific Asian countries. We know as black people that a, a lot of things, perceptions, uh, and unsaid rules exist due to the color of our skin, right? But but mm-hmm. But systemic and structural racism is not always obvious to the eye. Uh, if you're not an informed person, it, will you explain to our listeners what types of structural and systemic challenges and inequities are, are, are present when there's a large minority population? And, and sort of what does systemic and structural racism look like? Well, the simplest form that I explain to people is transportation. In our district, if you look at where the transportation lines flow, a lot of them don't flow into areas that actually have jobs. And so when you have communities such as Belgrade, where the bus actually stops at 4.30, and someone from Belgrade wants to have a job in Palm Beach County, in downtown West Palm Beach, well, if they don't have a car, they actually don't have a way to get to work. And so they can't even build the basic um, amount of money to get a car. So it's like a big barrier to even have employment for you to actually be able to move forward. And we have transportation issues like that all around the district. But then if you even look at opportunities, a lot of the times when minority businesses are trying to get opportunities for um, government contracting, the amount of money that you have to have to even start the contract, we never had an opportunity to, to make that money or even had an inheritance. But we see our counterparts who are actually getting their, their inheritance, they're getting their insurance money, and they're taking that lump sum of cash and using it as a basis for their businesses. Mm. So then once you start understanding that, you see that we are really precluded from getting those contracts and moving forward and really moving us to, um, towards our economic desires. And that's when I talk about economic justice. For years, when you have so many people who have not been able to really acquire wealth because of history and slavery and Jim Crow and being pigeonholed into these lower um, economic statuses, now when people say, oh, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, how? Right. Where do you get two million? You don't have boots. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How do you do that? Right. And so right now it's imperative that we are really systematically writing in minorities because the money that's flowing into the community right now, we won't see that money flow again. It's directed at economic stimulus. So one of the things I've been doing as we have different meetings is I look at it and say, okay, just give me three things. That's all I'm going to ask you. You know, you receive the federal funding. Now tell me how many small businesses and how diverse were they? Let me know. You should be able to tell me how many and this this amount were African-American, Hispanic. Then tell me how many new jobs you created and tell me their background. And then tell me where do they live? And that's been the systemic, the systematic approach I've been coming to every single meeting because it says clearly in every bill, the American Rescue Act, um, the CARES Act, even the infrastructure bill, it says for economic advancement, for people, for families, for industries, and for small businesses. And so if we want to have a real look at if this is actually going towards the equitable means that they had in mind, well, let's start tallying it and let's see how it goes, which is so important right now with the infrastructure bill, because the infrastructure bill is actually giving out the money incrementally. 
So if in the first quarter you're not there and I don't see my numbers going to minorities that it should reflect the district that you're serving, well, then we might have to either move that money from you or you're going to have to really pick it up very quickly. And that's where we have to be. We have to take a real hard stance on economic justice when it comes to minorities. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about that. And you're saying it in a way that a lot of people know, but they're afraid to say it when the time is right. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and and I've heard it consistently from you. So I do appreciate that. And listeners, if you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking to Congresswoman Sheila Sharipolis McCormick, and uh, she's the new person in the big chair down in uh, <laughs> District 20. And uh, she's already making an incredible impact on our lives. And uh, I think that's a good thing. Let's talk about health justice, though, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and health justice gives human dignity to everyone, right? I mean, regardless of who they are and where they come from, it means access to equitable and affordable quality care for everyone. What are some legal and, and policy issues impacting health equity, and, and, and what are you proposed uh, to improve it? Well, when we look at the, um, the natural determinants that can kind of let you know who actually has access or not, it's going to be tied to economic and to access. And so for us to overcome the real access issue, because a lot of providers are going to put themselves in communities where people are insured or that they can actually have a profit. When you are working with Medicaid and Medicare, it's very hard to have a profit. And so when we have Medicare expansion and we have universal, um, that's one of the biggest steps we can take towards making sure we have equal access. Because at that point, everyone will be placed on kind of a like a, a baseline. And when you have a baseline um, of accessing healthcare, that's when you can see that the community can become healthier, has a shot at it. I always say it's really about giving you the opportunity to be healthy. Mm. We can't guarantee you're going to go, but right. I want to make sure you have the opportunity to get healthcare. And then those comorbidities that really tear up our country, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, congestive heart failure, even certain cancers that you can catch earlier on, then you would have access to have a physician, a primary care physician, and get healthy. But in that argument, because I've been doing this when it came to affordable health care, when it came to Medicare for all, for years, and the biggest argument they place in front of us is that our country cannot hold a financial burden, which is correct in some instances. We, but, you know, it's just like any other thing that you're doing. If you have a real big budget, you figure out how to make it work. And what I realized that if we spent some money on preventative health, which means more money on making sure that you don't get diabetes, or if you do get diabetes, diabetes has been proven certain types to be reversible. So we'll have less people who are suffering from diabetes, who rely on insulin and all the other um, medications that really push up the price of living with diabetes. But we also find that with congestive heart failure, if we can prevent some of it, if we can slow down, um, then we don't have so many people who are living with congestive heart failure for a longer amount of time. And that goes back to certain cancers. Certain cancers, if we can actually screen early. Um, I was talking about breast cancer. Breast cancer in minority women actually pops up earlier than other demographics. So the age that we have where we're screening at 40, it's really not the best age for women in America. When we look at the totality of it, we need to start screening earlier. And so those are the preventative steps that actually have to be implemented today so we can start moving towards a, a universal basic income, a universal basic healthcare system that we can afford. So you've talked a lot about your prosperity plan, right? I mean, you mentioned it here as well. And I mean, you call it the people's prosperity plan. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you think about this wealth disparity that continues 
to head in the wrong direction as it relates to black people and white people. Um, When you were campaigning and talking about your prosperity plan, what was it that people gravitated to most? And I'm I'm sort of I'm, I'm asking you to tell me about your polls but 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 what but but seriously because I'm just really interested in this because there's so many issues right I mean you talk mm-hmm. there's so many inequities there's so many disparities but when you were out on this on the path and you were talking to people about your prosperity plan what was what was what were the the pieces that they gravitated to the most well, what we started doing, every time we would go out, we would ask people different questions like, what are you concerned about? What can I help you with? And every question ended up with economic instability. I am housing shortages. That's a huge issue. I just need to make sure that I have enough money to pay my rent now. Or what about catching up on my rent? Or because um, there's a lot of um, housing programs and rental assistance, the money wasn't even paid out. And so they were looking for stability and it being paid out um, or it was insecurity with, you know, food insecurity for our elders. Um, their housing went up also. So it always had the end. The end problem was financial security during the pandemic. And when we looked at the different introductions, different bills that were being introduced, we saw one that was dealing with elderly people who are on Social Security, giving them at least $1,000. Then we saw the um, child tax credit, which gave you money for each child that you had. Um, and then we saw pilot programs popping up throughout the country. And there was one thing that every pilot program had throughout the country that was similar to my district. We had um, inner cities. We had communities with high populations, and we had communities that had multi-generational homes, and we had minorities. And those communities that actually implemented these um, temporary basic income programs, they actually prospered. And we found that the most, the where they spent their money was on gas, housing, and food. And that was the same thing. Every time I talk to people, they ask me about how am I going to pay my gas um, and, and drive my car? How am I going to actually buy food? And how am I going to pay for my home or even rent? Mm. So that to me seemed like a clear pathway to actually helping everyone. But where I felt like it was unfair was that if we didn't have um, electeds who knew how to do that in your city or who had the desire to do it, then everybody didn't have a chance at recover- recovering equitably. So you would have to like try and move into that city to even have, have an opportunity. So I believe that we need to have a systematic way throughout the entire country where if you choose to participate at least you can have access to that for the life of the pandemic or truthfully for the life of until we get economic security and stability. You know, listening to what you're saying here about what you learned from people, it just really goes back to, you know, our people don't want, they're not asking about the next house or (laughs) they're, they're not asking about their 401ks and all these things that, that people ask for to amass certain things. They're asking for basic survival things that that other communities just sort of take for granted we're talking about communities just like where am i gonna get gas money where you know i gotta work three jobs how am i gonna get to the second job right because if you're talking about Bellglade, it's not a choice of whether they work in palm beach they have to you know if you're not doing if you're not in sugar industry you're pretty much you know, headed to the county somewhere to work. If you're not working for the college or the county sheriff's office, you're going to Palm Beach, you're going to West Palm Beach to work. So it it just, I mean, I just applaud you guys for being willing to put your name on a ballot 
and being willing to go up and fight these issues because, you know, there's so much that we need. When do you get to what we want? And we got to count on people like you to sort of help us figure that out. I, I know I take a lot of your time. Let me say this. You are first generation American. Um, I got to think your parents are overwhelmingly, and my friend Daryl Jones would say deliciously proud of you um, for this accomplishment and in advance for the work that you're going to do. Um, how does that how does that make you feel? I know I'm right about that. So I'm <laughs> just going to ask you, how, how, how does that make you, is that heavy for you or, or is it just a comfortable place? Well, it can never be comfortable. It's heavy, but it's a good type of heavy because um, every new position should stretch you to be the best you can be. So um, there's definitely a stretching here for myself, for my team, because we have to deliver. You know, being the first, you, your performance is gonna—it's gonna pretty much um, base everybody's uh, expectation of who comes after you. And I think that it's important that we set a great precedent, um, not even just for immigrants, but for Black women um, and Black people. Because being in America, when I go around, they—they they see me as a Black person first. And it's important that when they see a young Black woman or a young Black person who is striving to be a unifying, because when we understand that it's our coalition building that really um, exalts us quickly and not being afraid to speak up for us in our coalitions, because sometimes they'll make us feel bad. Like, why are you guys still asking for this or that? You mean equality? <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. So um, it, it's just it just makes you more um, aggressive. And everybody asks me, well, how's it going? Because you're coming in the middle and we don't have orientation. We don't have any of that. And I said that the adrenaline to be my best for the people keeps me going, keeps me going. Um, and I think it's a great space to really push that forward and let them see, you know, what comes out of District 20. Because the newspaper were writing all kinds of stuff. Like, how could she be successful? She's from one of the poorest districts in the country. And I always say that just because I was born into poverty doesn't mean that I have a poverty mindset for the rest of my life. And so it's important that we show them who we are and what we can accomplish, even starting from the bottom. Man, I love that. You don't have to have that mindset for the rest of your life. Listeners, mm -hmm. we have to end it there because I think that says it all that, you know, we can rise above our circumstances and uh, we got to do it mentally, physically and every other way we can. And I know with our new congresswoman, we got a congresswoman named Sheila now, y'all. <laughs> uh, we she would also say that you got to vote right so all of us who are out there she made it by how many votes five five, five votes so tell me that a vote doesn't count i don't think congresswoman sheila sheriffless mccormick would tell you that votes don't count you she knows they count and she's lived it so listen congratulations to you and um and um, we're looking forward to the fights and we're looking forward to um, all these um, Haitian American and black American, all just little girls everywhere looking at you and saying, you know what? I can do that. And I know that's prideful for you as well. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking time and and we'll look forward to, to seeing all the great work that you're going to do. 
Thank you. Thank All you right. so much. And have a great weekend. All right. Listeners, stay with us. Uh, Pittman Point right after this. Time for Pittman's Point on 96.1 Jams. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And happy Black History Month. I know I said that earlier. Um, but also happy American History Month because we all know that black history is American history. We just had an incredible interview with uh, with a powerful black woman in Congress, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Sharifalis McCormick. And we're going to stay right here, y'all, on Black History Month for today's Pittman Point. The Honorable Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman ever elected to serve in the U.S. Congress in 1968. Mrs. Chisholm uh, served seven consecutive terms in Congress. Dang, seven. And was the founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Women's Caucus. We know her as the first black woman to ever run for president of the United States when she did so in 1972. But today we're going to focus on one of her most famous quotes and what it means in practice today. Service is the rent we pay for the privilege of living on this earth. Those are words that great leaders like John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, and so many others lived by uh, when they fought for civil rights in the 1950s and 60s. Words that leaders like the incomparable Rosa Parks, whose 109th birthday uh, we just celebrated uh, last Friday. Uh, But y'all, as we know, that generation of leaders is either gone or have aged to the point where the next generation must step up. Young people, Gen Z, millennials, it's time to get to work. The freedom ride is not over. And I'm not just talking about Black History Month. It's time for you to do your part, serve, and make an impact for the next generation. It's time for you to do your part. So the Pitman point today is young people, carry the torch. Carry the torch to fight for equality and for justice. It's on you now. And that's not to say that you're not doing the best you can with what you have, but we can all step up. This has been the Sean Pittman Show. We'll see you in seven.